0: My name is Noah. Hey, Noah, good morning to you. Guess what? we got a big show today. Our major topic today is going to be a little IPsec loving. We're going to talk about IPsec adventures that Noah's gone through, and I'm going to just label them as adventures for right now. We'll get more into it as the show goes on. In the news segment, we're going to talk about some news for hardware enthusiasts especially those of us who like to maybe modify the piece of equipment that we bought budgie has some big big news for 11 it's already caused memes forks and all of the above wine 2.0 is out and everybody's taking a crap on it we'll explain what's going on there and noah has a mini review of simple help and i'm i'm pretty interested to hear how this went i i got to read through the Get this blog post that Noah made on this earlier, and it sounds like it was a real lifesaver. Then we'll get into the feedback segment, and I got a question for you guys as well. But before all of that, Noah, do you know what we've got? We've got the (laughs) pics. We've got the pics. Now, this is awesome. This is submitted to the Ubuntu subreddit. It's the British Maritime Museum, and they have a sign that runs Linux about paddle power. Digital signage, Noah. It's huge. Mm Mm-hmm. This is a good one. Now, how do you know? How do we know this uh, sign runs Linux for you audio listeners? There is a LCD screen built into the side of this uh, sign, and uh, it's at the Grub bootloader with Ubuntu on there. <laughs> <laughs> looks like kernel 320, oh, when I put my face right up to the screen. Version 3.2, is that what that says? Can't quite see it. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, it looks... Yeah. Oh, yeah. 32027. Oh, generic with... P, uh, PAE, you know, so <laughs> it's a 32-bit kernel too. That's uh that's adorable. I was doing some uh digging around to see what canonical kind of recommends for companies now so they avoid this problem where they're on like these super old kernels and 32-bit hardware. And mm. uh they've got like a they've got a, a whole page now on digital signage running on top of Ubuntu. And they wow. kind of they push people towards their transactionally updated Ubuntu core which they mm-hmm. say is a better way to go. And that makes sense, right? Atomic upgradeability would be perfect for a digital sign. And uh, then, of course, you would also get more modern support for, like, new Wi-Fi chips, NFC, Bluetooth, all that kind of stuff. And some of these digital signs, Noah, there's platforms out there you can get. A bunch of them run on Android, as mm-hmm. looking. And the ones sure. that run on Android, like, they have – they turn on all of the radios. Like, they turn on the Wi-Fi radio. They turn on the Bluetooth radio. Not – not for connectivity but for listening. So so, so they can get a listen for IDs like Bluetooth IDs and things like that. Yeah, it's creepy stuff. It's like creepy privacy invasion trying to track who's walking up to the sign kind of stuff. Not yeah, not my favorite.
1: So the, the thing is, I think that very quickly you're going to see the industry uh, kind of standard, uh, standardized around something. And I think that's either going to be Android or it's going to be Ubuntu. Yeah. Um, the reason I think that it's going to end up being Ubuntu long-term is because I think they're going to have a lot more control over the platform than they would on an Android device. And I have seen some of those Android devices and they crash.
0: Yeah. So well, I mean, what do you think about – what about a Raspberry Pi running Linux? Because there's also – the uh, Raspberry Pi digital signage project, which has a whole bunch of platforms on board that work with it. I mean, a whole bunch of platforms. And I, some of I these dudes a, are just slideshows, remember. We're not talking super I, sophisticated stuff. I think it's really cool. I think that
1: if you're a company that is capitalizing, you know, if you're competing with like tightrope media, I think you're going to have a really hard time trying to build a, a business on top of a, a $29 Raspberry Pi. I could be wrong, but that's this uh, that's cloud-based that. digital
0: signage platform helps you design and schedule easily from the web, and it runs on a Raspberry Pi on the end on the endpoint with a HDMI out So it might be possible. It depends on what you want. You know, if this mm-hmm. is a if this is a, a a school district school board meeting room, and you want to have a board in there with a screen that has a Raspberry Pi hooked up. Oh sure, th- yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Smaller scale stuff, I think it'd be fine. Yeah, I wonder if larger scale would be okay too. I don't, I don't know myself, but I think. If I was gonna if I was gonna make a bet, I well of course the industry never does this, but God I would love to see the industry bet on a platform that can be easily updated like Ubuntu Core. It doesn't mm-hmm. even have to be Ubuntu. Just please make it something that can be patched because as we get all these little devices, even billboards on the side of the freeway, all that kind of stuff, it would be really nice to see these things getting updates. And then a lot of the things that I looked into, a lot of these digital signage software packages I looked into, many of which also run on Android. So many of them have a cloud component, so that way you can update the signage remotely, which means these things have active internet connections. So it's extremely important that we update them. If you don't want to plug it into the internet, you don't want to plug it into a network, all right, fine. Then your digital sign, you want to just bring up an SD card or a USB stick and update the slideshow or update the graphics. I don't care if it never gets a patch, but I feel like if you're putting it on the internet, it's almost like a public good at that point. Yeah, Noah. Yeah. Noah, he yeah. looks at you scornfully. Noah.
1: I think that uh, I think that the, you're going to see more things transitioning towards online because the the big push is right. If I just want to put it up and leave it up, I would just go back to a poster. The thing is, <laughs> if I have, if I, I'm serious, if I have a digital sign, the nice thing yep. is if you can talk to like a VPS. And then you can manage that stuff from, you know, anywhere. You update it one place, at your VPS. Of course, the problem there is you've got to find a cost-effective VPS and one that works well. But if you can do that, then you're set.
0: Hey, like DigitalOcean, head over to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code. Here's the thing. It's one word. It's lowercase. Smoosh it together like you're slurring it and apply it to your account after you've gotten started. In fact, if you have a DigitalOcean account and you've never used one of our promo codes before, you've never used a promo code before, it'll probably work for you too. And I encourage even you longtime customers to try this because DigitalOcean always has something that's worth experimenting with. Like right now, they're launching a distributed traffic API. They're also launching a private monitoring beta, which I've been included into. And when you look at the pricing structure, think about just experimenting with NextCloud or Minecraft server or a Mumble server for a game. I and mean, think about the different things you could play with that are just great classic open-source projects that would just take you a couple of minutes. In some cases, it's a single application deployment. And for $0.03 cents an hour, you get 2 gigs of RAM, a 2-core processor, a 40-gigabyte SSD, and 3 terabytes of transfer. They're all SSDs, whatever price points you get into. They have rigs that go up to, like, 200 gigs of RAM, and they got rigs with 512 megs of RAM. It just depends on what works well for your pricing and your application need. And, of course, you can always scale up. To make, to make it approachable for even total noobs, though, they have a really really great ui and the nice thing they've done is they've managed to walk that line and make advanced users feel like they are not being limited like <clears throat> if you're watching the video version right now you see you select your data center and you could just be done but then these little these little numbers pop out underneath it and you can if you can choose your region specifically and they give you these advanced flexibility, and customization options at each little step in a way that doesn't get in your way. And then they wrap it all up with the most amazing API I've ever seen interact with this stuff. We use it on a daily basis here at Jupiter Broadcasting. This live stream that the chat room is watching right now was started using the DigitalOcean API. So they have a great interface, super intuitive, data centers all over the world, and you can get started in no time with just about any distro you'd want to run on a server. DigitalOcean.com. And to kick it up, they've got really great documentation, really good stuff, it's going to help you, even if they didn't have a one-click application deployment, it's going to help you go further. I think this is probably something that I'm going to say, even if you're not a DigitalOcean customer, you could still get a lot of value out of. How to, here's one that I honestly could use myself. How to rewrite URLs with mod rewrite for Apache on Ubuntu 16.04. That is super useful stuff, and it's honestly something I would need to kind of look up again if I had to do. And there's really nothing about this that's super DigitalOcean specific. So if you want to get started learn a little more about DigitalOcean, dig around on their site, read their tutorials, check out their pricing, and when you're ready to sign up, after you've created your account, apply our promo code, here's the thing, all one word, get that $10 credit, and try it for a little while. Look how good this documentation is structured here. You got the date, you got the tags, but also on the left-hand side, you got each major segment, and for yourself, if you're logged in, you can mark it as complete so you know which ones you've gone through. You can also subscribe to this particular article in case it gets future updates, too. It's a really good system. I mean, they pay people. They have full-time editors that like go through this and make sure it looks right. It's a good system. I think it's, they've really taken it seriously. And it's just, it's just one example of how hard DigitalOcean works on all of this stuff. So go to DigitalOcean.com, use our promo code, here's the thing, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this here Linux Action Show. So this is something that I've talked about like sort of like a wish list item before and uh, mm-hmm. this came in through the subreddit. It looks really nice. It's, a remote SSH sharing tool, so you can invite friends to SSH into your laptop using their GitHub handle. So it's sort of, uh, sort of like um, bringing, bring like it's like giving, creating an invite system for SSH. There you go. That's probably the way to think of it. It's creating an invite. So if you wanted to say you needed the beard to work on something for you, mm-hmm. and it was on a new system we'd never logged into, and maybe you guys in the uh, were just. Online friends, right? You guys had conversations on Mumble. You had conversations in the chat room. Established mm-hmm. each other's expertise and and trusted each other. But he'd never logged into your systems before. But you – and he had a GitHub account, which most people do that are – so he could – by just get knowing his handle, you could invite him to your system using this teleconsole software. He gets an ID and a web UI link he can click on. And Bob's your uncle. He can get into your box. Including – you could he also works with SSH keys. They have a video here and I don't remember – uh i don't remember if it is all that good but hi there hi welcome to teleconsole yeah i'm
1: tele-console here allows you to temporarily turn your computer into a publicly accessible ssh server and it's pretty simple to use all you have to do is run the teleconsole command then a local ssh server is started an outbound ssh tunnel is created and a session id and url are printed which i can share with others how cool is that so let's say i want my friend darlene to help me out with nginx all I have to do is give her the session ID, then she can run teleconsole join with the session ID, and now she joins my session. We're now sharing the terminal, and she can show me what's wrong with my Nginx configuration. So whatever she types, he can... Okay.
0: Good, yeah. Good, good. Yeah, yeah, good. yeah. He gets to watch it, and so... you Or, like, picture, like, you're working with Alan Jude on your uh, FreeNAS, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you're trying to rescue some FreeNAS stuff, uh, and you need to know the best CFS command to run. There's a lot of different uses for this, and yeah, you get to watch it in real time, too. Also, got the so URL, that's a, that's, and Go ahead. I'll, I'll stop. It. i
1: was just going to say that's a big thing to me because I've worked with independent contractors that we brought in for a one-off job. And I've got to tell you, there is every time I do it and it never gets any easier, there's always like this, this little sphere. point where I'm like, yeah. I am about to give this person unfettered access to a client system right. and they better not screw me. Like, you know, cause I can't watch them. I, I can't see what they're doing. Right. And so we try and vet these people as best we can. But you know, right at that moment, you're like, Mm. So, so, yeah, being able to see what they're doing, that would make me feel – And what takes
0: more- it up to the next level is this GitHub integration. Let's try this one real quick. Let's see if this is any good here. This video. Oh, no, this is – there's no audio. So this, this part shows you how you can use – so you can use their – you can invite them via their GitHub handle. And mm-hmm. I think the other thing I really like about this is it's the off switch, Noah. So as soon mm-hmm. as you're done working with this person, you revoke this session and they no longer right. have, they don't know your IP address. I mean, they could your figure ID. it out if they got in, but like they, they don't have, there's not a port open on your firewall for 22 inbound to this system. You didn't have to make some sort of exception for them. You just revoke the session ID and uh, it's pretty cool. So you need teleconsole for it uh, and then you need this, uh, uh, the uh, instructions that are here in this link to make the uh, GitHub part work. But pretty cool idea and it could make remote support which we're going to talk more about in this episode, uh, much more doable. There's there's different types of remote support, right? There's GUI remote support where you need to see see somebody's desktop session. And then there's remote support for server-side stuff. And uh, that's it. So check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes if you want to follow that. I have an update for those of you that have been asking on my QNAP review. Remember a couple of weeks, months? I can't remember Mm -hmm. now. We reviewed uh, the QNAP TS453A that runs Ubuntu. And uh, I've put it – I installed it. Noah helped me install it in my RV. And uh, in – let's see. What, what day was this vlog? On uh, January seventh, vlog on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Fisher. I updated my review. Essentially, long story short, um, I'm, having, I'm having drive reliability issues in one particular drive, drive 3. Put a new drive in there. Within a couple of hours, it says drive 3 has failed me. And uh, so I'm starting to consider needing to uh, replace this with a solid state system and maybe just going with considerably less storage and having to juggle data around a lot or something. So I'm kind of curious to know what people would suggest if I had to go with the highest capacity but solid state or if people had a suggestion for how to suspend this thing. So vibrations in the floor when people are walking around aren't causing it to have issues. I don't have the rig running while the RV is going down the road. In fact, I don't right. even have I don't even have the thing powered on if I'm disconnected from power, so um, I turn it off. It's one of my one of my pack up camp processes. I turn off the NAS, but mm-hmm. I believe just the RV being parked there and the walking around and like jumping on couches when the kids are around and stuff is enough vibration. perhaps. Although I don't know why it would always be drive three that's failing and not any of the other drives. It's put yeah. a new drive, put a new disk in slot three, and a couple hours later it says it's failed. Um, But I was kind of considering maybe taking this QNAP, putting it here in the studio and putting a 100 percent solid state solution in Lady Jupes. But that seems like it'd be super expensive and probably at best maybe if I wanted four terabytes, if I put like two, two terabyte SSDs in like some sort of enclosure. So it's a major downgrade because 24 terabytes is barely enough storage space. So I don't really know what to do here. So I'm wondering Um, if maybe other people have like ideas for isolating it from vibration insulating it in a sense, but of course I can't do a lot of bulky equipment because it's going inside a dinette. Um, So I don't know. I've been monitoring temperatures so far and temperatures have been all pretty stable. It's been pretty cold out. So it's at the summer, it may be another issue, but right now it's all been pretty solid. So I kind of went through the process and I show the errors and stuff uh, in the vlog that I put out on the 27th, which is titled All I Really Want. I'll have a link in the show notes. Yeah. So that's sort of the sort of Two months in or whatever it is, it's been pretty solid, except for now when it's, in, when it's trying to rebuild the array, the QNAP mm-hmm. is just dog slow. Like, I can barely well, even play files back. Yeah, of course. Oh, but it's that's, the worst, dude. It's the worst. Yeah, that's to be Because when it's a 24-terabyte array, it takes forever. And then, essentially, the drive fails, and then it stops. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I uh, yeah, I, I've been otherwise super happy with the functionality of this device. I would definitely still recommend it functionality wise. In fact, they just did an update now where I, it can run LXD containers, Docker containers, VMs. It can do ha- hardware pass through uh, mm-hmm. for the VMs. I mean, it's it is it's got it's got so much. It's, it's got a lot of great features, but I am having issues with it, and I'm going to try to keep posting updates um, in in that. Also, in the update column coming up soon will be a review of Dell's. Sixth generation XPS 13 Sputnik laptop. Yes. I have that in studio right now, and I've been starting the testing process on that. So it's got... I'm excited. I'm personally excited to see that. It's nice, dude. It's an i7 7500U. It's got a 512 gigabyte SSD in it, 16 gigs of RAM. It's got the 4K yeah, screen. Excellent. It's a nice rig. It's only... review. I didn't buy it. It's a review unit um, that I have to send back, but... Uh, I'm right now, I'm in the try it as a full product stage, so it's, you know, the sure. unboxing, I'm running it with Ubuntu and Unity, trying out that stuff, and doing that for a few days, and then I'll probably be trying out different bulletproof Linux solutions on it, trying out different distros and trying out all kinds of things. So in the next week or so, I'll probably be ready to do my review depending on how much hands-on time I get with it. So that'll sure. be coming up soon on the show as well. But why don't we move on? Because that's not what we're here to talk about. Let's do the news. It's the news, and this episode is brought to you by... Ting. Go to last.ting.com. That'll give you a $25 discount. Or if you bring a device, and you probably can because they have GSM and CDMA networks, so think about that, they'll give you a $25 in service credit. Now, why does that matter? Why is $25 even worth talking about? Damn, you got to learn about Ting. You got to go to last.ting.com and check it out. Only pay for what you use mobile service. So that is huge right there. But then to top it off, no contract nor the termination fee. Mm-hmm. That's Ting. That's Ting right there. It's no BS, simple mobile service. They have a great management interface, which is a must these days. Super good customer service. Like, legit, actually talk to a human customer service. They are really good. And then they just have no BS anywhere. Like, with the way the store pricing works, the way their wireless pricing works, it's really easy to understand. You can find out more by going to last.ting.com and hitting the how much would you save. Your average bill for one device Twenty three dollars. That's the average. What's, what's what the customer average is paying? And I think at one time I had some some stats about Jupiter Broadcasting customers, and I, I think it was uh, just in that range too. People are like really nailing that. If you're a small business, I would really encourage you to check it out because you can get a lot of mobile devices for a really great price. Each team member could get a mobile phone for six dollars a month. That's all it costs for a line at Ting. It's just six dollars, personal or business. Six dollars in the usage, and we'll, oh, and Uncle Sam's cut, whatever Uncle Sam's going to take. And if you have Wi-Fi at your place of business and your users have Wi-Fi at home, I, I, I can't – I mean I can't tell you how <clears throat> how empowering it is to have three smart devices for 30-ish bucks a month. It's nuts. And I'm also thinking about – no, what do you think about this? I'm thinking about taking my Ting Wi-Fi that I usually just kind of like keep for when I'm traveling. Yeah, and yeah. Putting it in the truck, like in the console of the truck and then mm-hmm. using the dashboard to just say, well – just turn it off when it gets to like a gig or two gigs. Mm-hmm. Just turn it off at two gigs. Just turn it off, and then it's like I have ubiquitous internet in my truck. And then if I go over mm. two gigs, it's it's off.
1: I I tell you, I'll one up your Annie. Oh yeah, they have a device. They have a device, and what it is is it plugs into your OBD two port. Yes. And basically, when you power the car on, it'll take power out of that OBD two port and power up the 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 Mi-Fi. and then you get your truck will have Wi Fi. So if you need Wi Fi, you can shut it off. And to one up the Annie, one up the Annie gets even better. Oh my it. gosh. They have, it gets even better. They have an external antenna attachment. You take the antenna, you can run it up so that you can get signal. And so what I've done with it, I go up to the lake, right? My phone doesn't have Wi-Fi, but my Jeep does. And so I just take my Jeep and I, I just start with the remote start, start the Jeep up, and it powers with the Wi-Fi. And now oh. I have Wi-Fi and
0: I have – You got to gotta send me a link to this. That sounds like – and you and, and it works on C, um, Ting's GSM or CDMA, which? GSM only. Okay. All right. I, I can work no, with that. I, I, I like got it. GSM the whole – I got great signal my whole drive to work, which is primarily where I want this. Because yep. I was thinking, like, I could use my phones, but if I if I allocated all that to one device and I just put a hard, the Ting makes it really easy. And you just say five hundred megabytes, a gigabyte, whatever you want. I just boom. Right. I'm going to personally cap that device, and then I always know I'm just going to I'm going to I'm going to put like I'll pay like five dollars a month for that MiFi device, or mm-hmm. I guess it's six dollars and plus whatever I use. It's like it's super simple. I, I like that flexibility because you can just get the SIM card, or you can get a full device. You can bring one from the Play Store. It's really nice. Also, their blog. Their blog, I love it, and uh, I love that they're blogging about uh, the new uh, new Shield. I think the NVIDIA Shield TV was one of my favorite purchases and installations of 2016. In fact, I like it so much, I got a second one. And uh, I would really encourage you to keep your eye out on eBay because NVIDIA has just announced the next version of the NVIDIA Shield, and it's essentially the same thing but with Google Assistant. So save the money and troll eBay. And just get the first-gen 4K NVIDIA Shield for much cheaper here in a few weeks. And it's such a nice device. And if you're looking for something to play back content on your TV, you want it to be fast as hell. You want it to be silent and hassle-free and lots of features with monthly Google security updates, the NVIDIA Shield is really great. And uh, Ting just wrote up a whole post on it, and uh, I would recommend it. They have such a great blog for cord cutters. They they also track a bunch of other stuff, so – Go check it out. If you just want to read their blog even, start by going to last.ting.com to support this show and then dig around on their site. You'll see a link to the blog. And if you get a little Ting curious, try that little what would you save button and uh, dig around. And when you go to last.ting.com, when you pull the trigger, guess what? You'll save a little money. Last.ting.com. Thanks to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. I have put this story in here because I felt like you would agree this is, this is probably a good thing. Five states in the US... <clears throat> And I would hope that something like this would spread to – if it's successful, not to just more than five states but maybe even to the rest of the world, which sometimes these things do. Five states are considering bills to legalize the right to repair electronics. Uh, Lawmakers in five states have introduced legislation that would enshrine the right to repair electronics, meaning manufacturers will have to sell replacement parts to independent repair shops and consumers. uh, And they will also have to make diagnostic and service manuals available. This seems like it could be really big for enthusiasts in the open source community.
1: Yep. I think that there are a couple of I, – I, I think there should be a couple of exceptions put on. I think that the cost for the service manuals, the production, whatever, I think they, they should be able to rightly put that cost off on those independent – uh, organizations i don 't think they should have to offer them for free. I absolutely think people have the right to open their own devices and you know a great example of this is Lewis Rosman, right He has mit- built an entire business on on being able to repair a lot of Apple products, and the way that he has he, and he, he talks about this in some of his videos the way that he has to learn how these components are put together is he has to go find discarded MacBooks that are in the trash and tear them open and take them under a microscope and like trace like where all these parts are going because Apple will not tell him how this stuff is put together and how to repair it because they want they don't want him to fix it they want him to buy a new you know macbook or whatever yeah. um, and that's that is, that is that is so absurd i mean there's is, there is being wanting to you know protect your know your, your patents and stuff like that and then there's this entire other level of control which is just absurd
0: um <clears throat> it's also though wouldn't be just like laptops and iPhones it would also be dishwashers refrigerators Sorry. servers and i think it's a tractors. huge one tractors Lo- yeah and mm-hmm. that's ironically I think one that has the least amount of visibility, which has some of the biggest issues and has right. had some of the biggest technical innovation that's getting just more and more locked down constantly.
1: And, and we don't talk about this, but I have, a, I have a good friend of mine who who works for a GM dealership. And um, he was explaining that, you know, as of a couple of years ago, the new GM cars, as they come out, basically the, the servos that like control like your locks or the windows, they have Mac addresses on them. And the Mac address is enrolled into a data console inside of the car. And so if your, if the little servo goes out, you can't just go to the store and buy a new servo and stick it in there and plug the wires in the, the computer will not send voltage to that little servo unless it's Mac address matches what it expects to be there. Now, the thing is they GM pitches it as a troubleshooting measure, right? We can plug our computer in and immediately tell instantaneously through our onboard diagnostic system that the servo over here is no longer functioning because the Mac address isn't responding. And that's great. But the, but the, the reality is it doesn't – you don't have to have that feature to to, uh, to send 12 volts to this little server to make the window go up and down, right? So this entire stuff is put in place specifically to prevent you from fixing your own car. I don't like that. I think
0: that's, I think that's terrible. And to shut and down, think, uh, you know, non-affiliated absolutely. repair shops too. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah this, this could have some traction. New York is one of the states that would be doing this potentially, and they're going to model it after the Motor Vehicle Owner's Right to Repair Act, which um, – became – which passed in 2012 and effectively just became national legislation at that point because if one state does it, it's just so much work. They just do it everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the hope is that at least one electronics right to repair law will pass this year in one of these five states and maybe open the floodgates around the country and then maybe around the world. So something we're just kind of watching because it has bigger ramifications. It's not always about getting open code too. You and I often talk about like laptop hardware that doesn't have open firmware and things like that and part of getting to that. Getting, in, getting rid of these binary blobs and some of that is, is, is getting access to this information, not always having to reverse engineering.
1: And, and to be clear, I don't – I don't advocate the, the law forcing manufacturers to release the, the code for their firmware and stuff like that. I do think they should be forced by law to allow you to repair – you know, your yeah. own device, get into yeah. your device and stuff like that. But, I, you know, if they want to keep their code proprietary, more power to them. I just won't buy their stuff. <laughs>
0: yeah, they, they can make that. They can make that choice in the market. We'll figure it out in the mm-hmm. long run. So mm-hmm. we've been talking more and more about Solus and perhaps in the context of building bulletproof Linux and the fact that we think it's going to be a pretty significant distribution through 2017. And it has been the one in 2016. And uh, right after Ike got off Linux Unplugged, he posted kicking off Budgie 11 and he talks about moving the Budgie desktop on Solus away from the GNOME stack. And uh, he says, by the way, no malice towards GNOME, lots of respect towards the GNOME project. Uh, but as the GNOME platform evolves, so do the desktops that run on top of it to maintain integration. And he goes into some of the weird workarounds. Like uh, one example is that uh, they have to do a lot of effort to pretend to be GNOME. So that way things can GNOME things can talk to the Budgie desktop the way you'd expect. So they do things to – to kind of emulate and pretend to be GNOME. And that layer of, of hack, I think, is getting a little bit thicker and thicker. Hack, if you will. Um, and so it looks like they, as sort of GNOME's move forward, they've looked at Budgie 11, and I think they've reflected on it and said, if we're going to really do this thing right, we've got to move away from GNOME, and we've got to move away from Vala. And uh, the, what they're moving to, after considering just about everything under the uh, open source sun, is cute. Uh, so it'll be mostly cute for Budgie. And uh, as well as um, <coughs> C++. So Qt and C++ are going to be the new things that uh, the Bungie 11 desktop will be built off of. And I think this is a great move for them long term. However, oh, by the way, there's already a fork and stuff. And Noah, I'm curious to know what you think about this. I think for me, for right now. For this moment in time, it disqualifies Solus for me as my bulletproof Linux distro, simply because this is a huge transition coming up, and it feels like what I mm-hmm. should do is wait till after eleven point oh one ships or something like that, and then consider making that mm-hmm. the bulletproof. Like if you're going to make a huge toolkit transition, and I want to build a bulletproof workstation like next week, <laughs> doesn't seem like good time. I,
1: I you know, I said I, I think I was I, I came down pretty decidedly on one side of the uh, one side of the fence and i said i i really don't think that i really think that solus you know stands out as as a distro for for doing a, a couple of select tasks i think it's a, a very boutique distro that, oh, that this to, again I I, well i'm just saying that's what i and i think this is further evidence of that i think the things that i'm using solus for are going to continue to work just fine i, bet you I pro think i
0: think if you took what, the time I'm to listen about. to every episode of linux unplugged that ike has been on you would not have that opinion Maybe I think but, it's a I think it's a trend-setting pioneering Linux distribution that not only is a great desktop but is doing stuff that's in some ways and yet super still, overdue.
1: And yet still, there are even it, with as much po- positive uh, you know things as you have to say about it, it's still you're not able to make it work for yourself.
0: If I want to build a five-year Linux computer right, right. now, I don't think so. Yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. So I'm just saying like I mean there's there's a, there's a lot of talk but when it actually comes down to the meat and potatoes of it I think you're going to have a really hard time getting people to say we're going to th- take 500 computers and install Solus OS over Ubuntu or over anything else in yeah. those in the scenario yeah. that you're talking about. I don't yeah. think you would have that if you're looking at somebody saying I've got 500 laptops and I want to repurpose
0: them as yeah. Chromebooks. Yeah, I think I I if mean, you're it, using it, it, sort of that, that sort of that extreme example, I think you're probably right. I think if mm-hmm. the example is the average Linux enthusiast that would be listening to this show that's setting up their own personal workstation, I think it's beyond one of the best choices for them. Maybe it would be all right. Again, I really I struggle with software you, you you availability. Can't, you can't say that because it, I the thing is I, I'm one of the most picky people when it comes to that stuff, and I've been using it since our review. I've got but it there on are three computers. software packages that are not available. There are software packages that you yourself well, talked. Yes, people. but what – yes, I agree. I agree with you on that. But what distribution doesn't have that problem? Well, Ubuntu. arch, arch, arch. No, see, the Ubuntu this the Ubuntu has the the worst software selection. It just has a ton of PPAs that people allow you to bolt on to your Ubuntu system yeah, to make well, it work.
1: When Solus gets PPAs, then we can have that conversation. But until then, the fact is there is a way for me to get that that bolt on yeah. software compat, you know, accessibility in Ubuntu, and that doesn't exist in Solus.
0: Right. Right. And I think if you were going to do like a big enterprise deployment like you're talking about for a, for a mm-hmm. lab or for a bunch of workstations, I think Ubuntu mm-hmm. would probably be a better choice there too compared to Solus. But I think – I don't know. I mm-hmm. think I think you're being too hard on it when it comes to personal workstation use. I think it's a really good candidate. I would suspect too that once they make this transition to QT, I think it's going to be one of the better candidates out there. Mm-hmm. Um, having having uh, used Budgie for uh, – Few weeks now, and then mm-hmm. sitting down on Unity on that mm-hmm. XPS 13, mm-hmm. Unity feels slow. It just like the time yeah, the Windows sure. take. to It just feels like it's a slower. Mm-hmm. There's just there's just an aspect to yeah, there's it. There's a lot more polish in in
1: in uh, in in Budgie too, which is one of the things that I really liked about it was that everything out of the box feels very very polished and just ready to go. It just Again, that software availability and that, and that, that overall like, acceptance in, I'm, you know. I'm curious to know what board.
0: software wouldn't be available.
1: Well, I'm just you know, in general, like you, you take, you sit down and you, you, you're going to work and you have people that are using, you know, like WebEx conferencing and they so have the there's issue, all though. these like individual, like, you know, I- I- the weird esoteric things that, that, that environments aren't going to expect you to have because they expect yeah. you to be running really Windows, kind of Mac, yeah. definitely not Linux, yeah. but to a small degree, they'll accept Ubuntu and you start getting out on these like one-off distros. And I think you, you just, you, you really back yourself into a corner.
0: Right. Uh, whenever you want to have the edges of software availability, I think you're right. Um, mm-hmm. if you want – because you're kind of mixing your examples. If you want a standard workstation, talking, there's just like – I'm
1: talking about business deployment. That's really what I'm talking
0: about. Well, but – OK. But when you say business deployment, are you talking office and web browsing and email? Because then Solus does that in spades. I mean software – you're making yeah, yeah, it sound yeah, yeah. like – I
1: agree. I agree with you. In fact, that's what I'm using it for. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm using. Out I, of agree. The, I think that's really its sweet spot. Out of the I box, it, it has that,
0: more – soft. out of the box, I would say Solus has better software available to it than Ubuntu does. Ubuntu, you can quickly remedy that between snaps and PPAs.
1: Yeah, sure. But like if you just open
0: up the software center, Mm. I think Solus wins hands down. I
1: agree. I think I agree with that. All of it. All of
0: it, yeah. You know, Google Chrome, all of it. It's all in there. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, Yeah,
1: I think I agree with that. mm -hmm.
0: So I was sort of disappointed because – I mean I'm not disappointed. I'm glad they're making this technical change because I think it's going to make for a better desktop environment, a more competitive desktop environment. I think Qt is a great language. Or not a language, a great toolkit, and I think C is a great choice as well. Um, I just don't know if it's right for me right now. It's gonna, it just kind of gonna have to wait and see. I'm just a little disappointed because otherwise, I I really like I mean, obviously, you guys can hear it. I really, I think it's a great distro. Um, I think Ike is a super clever guy, and um, I think he's making the right choice here. I just, uh, I just, I don't know what I'm gonna do now. I guess mm. cuz I was kind of planning to do that and then use docker to fill in the gaps and uh could you use something like debian as a base? That is the next on my list is debian. Yep. That okay. is the next on my list is debian. Here's the only thing is what I would like to get from the audience is uh I would I would like to know what would be the what would be the most straightforward and supported way to run the plasma LTS desktop. So I think it's was that that's plasma 5.8 the version of the plasma desktop that uh, they have they have determined to be LTS. Here's the thing. Unity is moving to Qt. Budgie is moving to Qt. Uh, LXQt is Qt. There's a lot of there's a lot of effort right now around Qt and it's something we've talked about on Quota Radio a lot too. It there's a lot of reasons for it and it seems like a pretty solid future toolkit. It feels like it's got a lot of life left into it uh the, not that GTK doesn't it just seems like a big part of what GTK is there to solve are the issues of the gnome desktop which i love but QT is there to solve a lot of other problems too so more people are using it more and more and um kind of been thinking maybe for my for my bulletproof desktop i will do plasma L- lts 58 i've been trying it on one of my systems uh-huh. plasma 58 for for about 4 days and so far it's uh, it's good it's going smooth it's only 4 days in yeah. but now, so far, it's met the, the number one priority. The number one requirement is, for four days in a row, I've sat down at that computer and gotten right to work with no other, with nothing else stopping me. I just the second I sit down, I'm working, and that's what uh-huh. I want for my main workstation. So I'm testing uh-huh. Plasma now. So if there is like a, a a repo where I can get like Plasma Five Eight LTS packages on mm-hmm. Debian Eight mm-hmm. or something like that, I would mm-hmm. seriously, seriously consider that a well maintained okay. Plasma LTS branch. On Debian might be exactly what I do. The only reason why I would probably also want to still consider Ubuntu 16.04 is for snaps, mm-hmm. for software availability in snaps. So I'm still considering Ubuntu uh, or, an, or an Ubuntu derivative for now as well. So I, I kind of would like to know what our, our Plasma desktop users out there are doing for this. Um, let's move on to some something that was super disappointing. And I guess maybe I should expect this from The Verge, but it's still it still really kind of hit me in the face. They uh, they now they ran they ran the announcement that Wine 2.0 has been released and here's their headline. Wine <laughs> 2.0 is out, ready to disappoint you once again. Do you know what's funny when
1: I saw that in the show notes? you know what my first thought was when I just when I just saw the headline? You know what the first thing that went through my mind was?
0: Wine disappointed me. Yeah, I know, when, right? When, when did wine disappoint me? I think I think Wine <laughs> suffers from from Lindows. I think I think there around the okay. time there was a time in the Lindos era. Where open source projects promised the moon, and we just said we're gonna we're gonna be able to you're gonna be able to run Windows apps, you're gonna be able to do everything under you could do under Windows under Lindows, using this magic technology called Wine, and mm-hmm. we just we ne- we weren't humble we weren't humble about it. And now, today, like, people are launching apps and and entire services that do half of what they say it's going to do. Look at No Man's Sky. Like, an entire Mm -hmm. game comes out, does half of what people say it's going to do, and it's just kind of the norm. And they don't get an entire lifetime of a bad reputation. Well, now it's just how we develop software. But when Wine first started shipping— it was in this era when we overpromised, and it got like this branding of never living up to the promise. If today Wine launched, if Wine launched today, the way it would be positioned is we can, we can in real time interpret some of your API calls and remap them to Linux API calls and a handful of Windows applications will run. It would be a much more modest much less hyped pitch. I'm not saying wine overhyped. I'm just saying this is yeah. how we, how the open source community talked about software and, sure. and, and Lindo specifically really ran this hard. And I think that misstep back then mm-hmm. is still what is pervasive today that causes headlines by Paul Miller to say, it's ready to disappoint you once again. Instead of saying, holy crap, look at this open source project that has not only been together for this long, which is a, a, a remarkable achievement on its own, that an open source project For free, no, just has come together and managed to work as a team for this long is an incredible achievement. So let's, but let's not mention that. Let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about the fact that a group of hobbyists. And professionals that contribute code have been able to create a translation layer that translates Windows application calls to Linux in real time. Let's not really get excited about that, even though that's remarkable and groundbreaking and at the core of what Microsoft did for the subsystem for Linux, which got headline after headline and headline after praise from The Verge. But now when the Wine Project does it for free for like for a decade it's it's a joke it's a laughing stock and this is the problem with tech reporting this is why i hate tech reporting so much this has got to be 70% of why i start some of our shows is because i am so sick of the silicon alley silicon valley bubble that these bloggers live in where they can't really they cannot connect with all of the work and effort that's going behind these projects
1: and if you compare what Windows was able to accomplish by getting a bunch of the Ubuntu subsystem there compared to what Wine is able to accomplish, it's kind of laughable, right? Like, I can, you know, inside of Windows, and I haven't played with it extensively, but inside of Windows, I can go and I can execute some terminal commands and, you know, I can run some CLI applications. I The first time I installed Wine, I think the first application I installed was like AOL Instant Messenger, and I just double clicked on the executable, ran through the graphical installer, it installed to like C program files, all that, like it handled everything out of the box for me. Yeah. And, you know, now we've gotten, you know, games and stuff like that. And a little bit later on, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, TeamViewer and how they have built an entire model based yep. on top of Wine's at, reliability. Look, across, really hard look
0: co- at CodeWeavers, right? They have a whole yeah, business yeah, around yeah, it. yeah,
1: yeah. Great example. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, so Wine has been around for 23 years and Wine 2.0 is a huge milestone. So here's what I think you should care about. Uh, lots of improvements for graphics. Support for high DPI in some situations. Much uh, uh, much improved compatibility for lots of Windows apps like Office 2013, which is still useful for a lot of people. And uh, a bunch of new direct 3D support stuff that's gone in. Stuff I'm not super interested in anymore. Like, no, is isn't. I mean, it's just not stuff I really need anymore. But it is, for those out there using Wine, this is a really great update to Wine. So congratulations to the Wine Project. Congratulations on 23 years. And congratulations on 2.0. Oh, now our next news story comes in from somebody, Colonel, this guy can't even spell his Nick, but anyway, Colonel, Colonel Enox, I'm not sure how to say this guy's name, Noah, but uh, it's an update on on some software we've covered before in the past, which is uh, very useful for you in your day job. So, ladies and gentlemen, buckle up for a moment. While we shift gears with Noah and actually go into his day-to-day life and extract a bit of juicy goodness for this show. And for those of you curious about uh, this particular thing that Noah's been working on, he's got a nice, long blog post written up all about it. And I'm going to give you some of the highlights here. You might remember when we did an episode, what was it, almost a year ago, maybe more than a year ago, on remote support and remote support under Linux getting remote access to people's computers. That's a big thing for Noah at AltaSpeed. He's launched a managed service. I think you launched it back in January, right, where you're, you're doing nationwide managed service for people. So remote desktop right. support is like a huge, huge component of that. And mm-hmm. you were using something at the time that kind of, kind of bit you in the butt, if I recall. Yep. Screaming you evaluated – yeah, okay. And you evaluated TeamViewer quite a bit, mm-hmm. like you were just saying. And and the issue with TeamViewer really came down to it requires their cloud infrastructure, Right.
1: Right. So if the, you know, if the company ever ceases to exist or even goes offline, you know, we have, we're, we're up a creek without a paddle and you know, the cost of team alone is, is an, is atrocious. It's, you know, eight, $900 per license. And the other issue that we ran into with team viewer is the versions of team It's very, very picky. If you have a client installation of a given version, the supporting district, the supporting, uh, client has to have a equal or higher version than the, the, the installed right. client, or you're not able to connect. And the, the problem with that is version, you know, for like, let's say version nine or 10 is I can't get that to work on the latest version of Ubuntu. And so if I pay eight or $900, let's say I buy five licenses for three grand or six licenses for three grand in a couple of years, in two, three years, I've got to buy all those licenses over again or I can't even connect to my own machines anymore, you know? And so it's It's very quickly going to, to get out of balance. It's going to become a huge cost. And so we had to find something different that would work.
0: And so you came across Simple Help, and we talked about it in the past. And one of the things that Noah and I both want to try to do on this show is give you follow-up reviews after we've been using something that we've covered on the show, like, maybe six months to a year later. And we're just about at that point, in fact, maybe even a little over. And you recently had a pretty interesting experience And so we thought it'd be good to follow it up on the show to let you guys know just if you've ever, if you've watched that episode and you're considering using it or you're still looking for a remote support solution that works under Linux, it'd be kind of good to give you an update on how that whole Linux support aspect has gone. And I I, I recall, you know, when you said that you tried SimpleHelp, I recall that there was a component to it that's still like, they still do Windows and Mac, but they do make like a specific Linux build of SimpleHelp, right? Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. I thought so. And so what happened here? Noah, did, did, the, did the build break? Was there a support issue? Give me the uh, follow-up on your Simple Help experience.
1: Yeah, so basically I woke up one morning and there's a little icon <laughs> in the corner Good. and it says update to latest version. Now, take back five five minutes ago, the conversation we just had. Yeah, I my say to myself, self, I don't need updates. I don't like updates. I'm not going to do an update and do updates later. <laughs> updates are for, you know, people like Chris, not doing an update. So I didn't do the not. update. Well, it turns out another colleague of mine uh, that works for a company called CTC Solutions, he did the update. And all of a sudden, he found himself totally unable to access any of his Linux clients. Oh, man. When he, when he would connect to the Linux client, he would press whatever key you pressed on the keyboard. It would just repeat that keystroke numerous times. So you pressed A, it would just fill the whole screen with it just wouldn't stop. You couldn't you had to disconnect from the client. And the second thing was you had no right click. So basically, it was a remote control solution with no keyboard, and no mouse as a big problem. And, um, and so he contacted the company, opened a support ticket and said, look, this is the problem I'm having guys. And first they came back and they said, yeah, we don't know exactly why, but we're going to look into it. And then I started to get panicked and I'm like, man, we have just transitioned our entire infrastructure over to this thing. We've got tons of people that are using it. I have, there are certain employees I have that that's the only thing they do is they work remotely on this system. What am I going to do? And so I just, I tweeted out at them because they had, I saw in my Twitter feed, they had responded. They said yeah, we have a new version out. And I'm like, Hey guys, you have a new version out but it's broken on Linux this isn't working and I, and I thought there's a small voice in the back of my head that said, this is the test. This is, we'll see how well they care, how much they care about their Linux users. Well, turns out they must care an awful lot because they had developers working on it immediately. By the next time I even opened my laptop, I already had a second update available and a follow-up from Chris that said they have another update available, but they weren't able to get it fixed in, in that update, but they're still working on it. And then a couple hours after that, I had a third update available inside of Simple Help. a tweet back from them saying, we found the issue and fixed it. Are there any other distros you'd like? Us to test it with, and then an email from Chris saying, "Hey, by the way, we got all this uh fixed. We got we tested it, and it fixed. It looks like it fixed. Can we do some testing?" And so then him and I spent a couple hours, remoting into different Linux machines on the newest version and trying it. We tried it on Solus, we tried it on Arch, we tried it on Ubuntu. We tried. I mean, you name it, we tried it. Perfect, right across the board. And so it's it really it it kind of set my mind at ease because I'm I'm ramping up to buy a lot of a lot more licenses because they're perpetual. Once you buy them, you own them forever. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I don't have any problem uh, spending some more money. And the other nice thing that they do is, you know, the first license I think is 300 bucks. Then they cut you a deal. If you buy two, then they knock it down to like, you know, 280. And if you buy four, but they'll give you that bulk pricing in granular steps. So I bought the first one for 300. If I go buy the second one, they'll still honor their $280 price split. And if I buy two more after that, they'll knock it down, you know, a little bit more. So you don't have to buy it all at once to take advantage of their bulk pricing, which is just encourages me to buy more licenses. But I'm, if, if you I, – I think I said in my blog post, if you are looking for a remote solution and you haven't found one yet, run. Don't walk to your computer and go buy a copy of SimpleUp or at least request a demo license and see if it works for you.
0: Yeah, there's a couple of things uh, as somebody who used to do this and a lot of times the user on the other end of the phone was not super savvy – uh, a couple of things that jump out at me is really nice is they have groups for access control. So you can have some yep. groups that have unattended remote connection where you can un- you can just connect to them without remote user interaction. Mm-hmm. And then you can have computers in other groups where it requires remote user interactions. Like Noah says, I put my machines in the group where you have to have my interaction to start the mm-hmm. remote session. But the other thing I think is nice is it does have a little icon that tells you when it, the somebody else is remotely connected Right. And it looks like what you hover over it or you can check it and you can see it will tell you how long since it was – somebody was remotely connected. So You can tell if somebody was on when you were away or something.
1: Right, and I can, I can go – I can look in at that, that management council and I can see a user and say that user has last used their computer 10 minutes ago or 15 minutes ago. Yeah. And I can judge based on that timer – Oh, that person just stepped away right. for a minute to get a cup of coffee or, oh, they haven't been there for seven hours. I can jump on there and take care of
0: something. So there are a lot of Windows networks and ne- Mac networks. There's mm-hmm. like different tools to do this. And like this will also do diagnostic mode where it will pull down a, you know, a bunch of data from the machine, file mm-hmm. transfer mode, things like that. Uh, and it's nice to have something that's like this available for Linux too. Because this is something in the school districts that I've worked in where this is really – this has been the domain of Windows and Macs for a really long time. And Linux, you could maybe if you were lucky, it would detect it had a VNC port and allow you to connect to the VNC port and that was pretty Mm -hmm. much it. And so to have something where it gives you this full like all of the access control stuff, the diagnostic mode, the file transfer, the requesting access if that's how you want to set it up, Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty sweet. So if you guys are in this profession,
1: they have another another mode too. I didn't mention it in there because I don't personally use it. So I don't have any real experience with it, but it does have the ability. If VNC is on and mapped, it will, you can, you can use simple help to broker the connection to the local VNC port and then connect via VNC rather than their own, their screen scraping algorithm thing. If you want to use that Um, personally, I think theirs works great. In fact, so much so, and I point this out in the article too, that I, have gotten to the point where if I have a machine on the workbench in the shop, a lot of times if I'm doing something, it's going to be time intensive. I'll just install the agent and go back to my desk and do it. Even though I'm in the same building, even though I have physical access to the box, i just rather do it through the simple up console sitting at my desk. Because it it more comfortable. Yep. That's and, and, a good know, sign of a good tool. Too <laughs> that I can just I can have it, it. It turns it turns the connection into this computer into a window. Right. So I yep. can go do other things as I'm kind of watching a progress. Bar. Mm-hmm. So and I like
0: that. between this and teleconsole. Like you've got both ends. Right. I mean, yes. Right. Really, this is this is nice to have Linux in this position. I mean, I we every time we talk about different remote management tools, which people exactly. seem to really. There's everybody's got their favorite. TeamViewer sure. always gets a huge mention from the audience, yeah. And so it's definitely something you can and you can even run it for free, right? There's ways to do it for free because I've used yeah, TeamViewer. If, you, if you're using if you're using it for personal use, oh.
1: there is there are a few options that are better than TeamViewer because their performance is uh, unmatched to anything, up to and including uh, yeah, like TeamViewer's Team Viewer's performance. I think team viewers performance is incredible. Yeah. The, 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 the things that get knocks from TeamViewer are one is the version thing I talked about earlier. The second thing is if they find out that you, you can't even try it for commercial use, they took themselves out of the running when we were looking at different help solutions. And I wanted to just see how it would work in our environment. We tried to connect to like three machines in a commercial environment. And it popped up and said, we've detected commercial use. You can't use it anymore. No connection for you whatsoever. And then, you know, that was embarrassing because we had to go back to the site and say, you know, we we're trying the software, it didn't work out. And so, I mean, they, they will shut you down hard. Um, And then the the fourth thing and the the real deal kicker for me is the pricing and the fact that you're basically relying on them to stay in business. Simple Help doesn't play any of
0: those games. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. So Mm -hmm. uh, this blog, is this a new thing for you or is just not something I followed? You know, it's, I've always wanted
1: to do a blog. I just don't have a lot of, uh, A, I don't have a lot of time, and B, I've never really had anything that I thought was worth saying. Uh, it just so happened that this week is one of those things where this seemed to be the the, the, uh, the most convenient way to present this material because I do want to give some attention to Simple because yeah. those guys, they're doing an awesome job. And But how do you present that without, you know, it wasn't yeah. really enough to make a show segment out of. So Talk about something get that gets you up
0: fired up. up, though. You know, you, you run into a bug because yeah, that happens, yeah. and then they get it fixed within a couple of hours before you've even deployed it. Exactly. That's, that's yeah. Exactly. Before we've even updated. it. That is pretty cool. All mm-hmm. right. If you'd like to see a news story covered in this show that wasn't covered, why don't you? Why don't you submit it? Go ahead. Why not? LinuxActionShow. And that's all the news for this week. We always had a big adventure this week with IPsec, and we're going to grok a little of it. A little bit of osmosis from Noah's crazy week, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he pulled off. But first, if you don't know what IPsec is or why tunneling is important or security or what IP is or what TCP is or what Linux is, I'm impressed you made it this far. But perhaps you should consider learning up. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Beginner or total expert, they've got a library of content for you. And labs that give you hands-on, scenario-based learning. Paths specifically that are built with content planned by instructors for very specific career tasks. Course schedulers for those of you that are busy. Note cards that are forkable by the community. Nuggets for when you don't have much time. For those little itsy-bitsy pieces of wisdom. And a community that's... Packed full of Jupiter Broadcasting members. I'm going to take that bell away from you, Noah. They got lab servers that spin up when you need them on demand. Instructor mentoring is available by real human beings. I think Linux Academy is packed full of good stuff. Start by going to linuxacademy.com unplug, support the show, and then sign up for a free seven-day trial. You can also sniff around on their LinuxAcademy.com Twitter handle. Why, look at this. A little spy cam into one of their recent meetings. You know what's nuts is they're growing like crazy. Linux Academy has exploded over the last year, not just in terms of user base, not just in terms of the amount of weight and legitimacy they now have in the industry and like the Linux Foundation and all these companies are working with them, but also in their team producing new content like crazy, making your membership more valuable than ever. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged and a very big thank you, Linux Academy, for supporting this show and congratulations on such a great year. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Tell me about your pain, Mr. Noah. Tell me about your pain.
1: Well, so let's start with what IPsec is. The chat room already is going, what what did he say? IPsec? What, What did he say? So IPsec is basically a protocol that takes packets and encrypts them and then sends them over the internet. That's basically all it is. And uh, the video is going to go into a little bit about how we used IPsec to solve a problem. There are just two disclaimers I need to make. One is that I was going to originally kind of do a how-to. I was kind of thinking about that. After spending literally three solid days setting this up and troubleshooting, I realized that it is just it's not quite that simple as just click these buttons and it will work. It requires a lot of thought and environment-specific planning. So there really isn't a one how-to way to do it. That said, I did put the uh, the configuration of how we set ours up. You'll have to go through and and you know come up with your okay. you know, match it to your IP. That might be a good starting like space.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. There you go, Richard. Uh, I've never installed GNU/Linux. Recently at Ultaspeed, we tackled a problem that uh, is a little difficult. It's it's not quite straightforward. I would do a how-to segment, but the process is actually so complicated and the troubleshooting is so intense that we're just going to start out with an overview. Later, if you guys decide that you like the information that we're presenting, we'd have no problem throwing together an exact how-to. Now, here's the situation. We've taken on a client, and at Speed, of course, we always want to virtualize Windows Anytime Windows is a necessary evil that allows us to run Linux on the bare metal, which means we can provide stability and security for the client as well as give them access to their necessary Windows software. Now, it gets a little bit more complicated in this particular case because the virtual infrastructure exists in one office and yet a printer with a very complicated software system that tracks how pages are printed and assigns them to different clients and keeps track of billing and all this stuff has to tie into this virtual workstation that sits 70 miles away. Now, typical cloud printing software kind of thing isn't going to work because, again, this has the software stack that needs to tie directly to the printer so the only way that we could get this to work was with a VPN setup now we didn't want to have to try to find a way to get any sort of VPN client on the printer itself so what made most sense in this case is to do a site-to-site VPN now that may sound simple but there's a lot that it entails, and I'm going to go over a, kind of briefly how we set it up, and then I'll show you kind of it in action, so to speak. Not that it's terribly exciting, because, I mean, really, it's just kind of you're able to ping from one place to another. But there are basically two technologies at work here. Um, well, three if you count the OSPF routing. So OSPF does our heavy lifting for our routing. But essentially what we've done is we've set up an IPsec tunnel from one office in their head office to their branch office. And then we use a a GRE tunnel to kind of keep that that tunnel alive. What would happen is if we didn't use GRE is the tunnel would it it, because the, the tunnel does not route traffic. It only forwards what it calls interesting traffic. And so what we have to do is we have to identify what traffic is interesting and then that traffic is then sent over our site-to-site tunnel. The problem with that is the very first time a user does something after the tunnel has been inactive for a while, the tunnel will close down. And so you'll have a a little bit of latency as that tunnel kind of fires back up. And so we use GRE to maintain that tunnel the entire time, kind of like a keep alive. And that will make sure that those, that the two sites are able to talk uh, all the time without any perceived latency. And that's great, but it's a real pain to set up. Now, once it's set up, as you know, at AltaSpeed, we use Microtech equipment. And so we have an RB2011 rack unit that sits at their head office. And then the branch offices are using Microtech's latest 750 HEX. Um, and the nice thing about the HEX is it is a $50 device. So the great thing about that is the branch office, we are able to set all their branch offices up with these little HEX routers. But we can also provision a couple of them and have them available to the staff So if, for example, the owner or somebody that works for them needs to go off onto another site, they can take one of these $50 devices or even take it home and plug an Internet connection into it. And within a matter of minutes, the tunnel will automatically establish themselves and you can basically have a box to get access to your business network from anywhere, and the cost-effectiveness of microtech equipment makes this possible, as well as their extensive ability to customize and and kind of situate you know very large enterprise network um, things that you know ten years ago we would have had to rely on companies like Cisco to do. Um, so I'm going to give you a brief uh, demonstration of exactly how. Uh, this system works. Again, it's not super sexy. It's not super interesting. But just understand that there's a lot of heavy lifting in the background with uh, OSPF, the GRE tunnel. And again, we're using IPSec to kind of establish this as well as I will put in the show notes, step by step instructions on how to actually set the tunnel up. But be prepared for some troubleshooting because it is it is fairly complicated. As you can see, we have two terminal windows up. We have our Montello office and our Madison office. We are going to go over to this window, and we will see that clients on this network are assigned 192.168.1. We are going to go into the IP DHCP server, and we can see here that clients on this network are assigned 192.168.100. Now you'll see here, if I ping across the network, I'm able to talk to the other office. And likewise, if I ping the other direction, you can see here that I'm able to talk back and forth. And you notice the latency is actually very, very, very limited. So there's not a lot of latency as these people are working, as they are doing their office work, You notice that they're probably not even really going to know that they're going over this IPSec tunnel. To them, it's just kind of like magic. And so basically what they're doing is they are uh, accessing a remote virtual workstation that sits in their head office. And then that head office is able, of course, to talk to any peripheral devices that are in any of their branch offices over this IPSec tunnel. And it's infinitely expandable now. We actually have the ability to set up areas so that we can. They it it can be autonomous and it can all talk back to that that um, that head office uh, as if that was kind of the hub, like a hub and spoke kind of technology. Or we can put them all into a single area and allow. Uh, each one of these head office routers to talk uh, or any of the branch office routers to kind of talk to each other without having to go through the hub. I want to give a special thanks to Chris from CTC solutions that kind of helped walk me through and get this kind of set up. And you know, it was, it was a lot of work, but, and it, it, it does take a lot of troubleshooting, but once you have it set up, you can do a site to site VPN with no problems. uh, And it, it works completely reliably. Once it's set up, it just, prepare for like six to twelve hours of troubleshooting to actually get the thing up and running because it's definitely not an easy task oh man
0: <laughs> this almost sounds like one of those things that after you're done you'd want to tear it down and rebuild it again just to make sure you can oh, set it up well, again you know
1: what's funny you know what's funny about that I I got everything set up I backed up the configuration files I reset everything to default I tried to set it up again spent I got about four or five hours into it and I went Forget it. Go back to magic configs. And magic configs went back up, and I said, It works. I'm leaving. (laughs) Uh, Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, it is, it is, and I have a feeling that some of that in my particular example is because of some unique uh, network. Problems that I inherited from the last company that was there, because if I when I set it up in in my lab at home, I'm able to get it running every single time. Oh, okay, so I think there's some environment things specific that that are that are confusing, but I tell you what, I would not wish troubleshooting this on anyone because I almost gave
0: up. I mean, it yeah. was a miserable three days. Interesting though, you get you stuck with it and you got it working, Noah. So that's commendable, and now you can mm-hmm. share what you what you learned in the show notes. So if uh, you want to follow up on some of this, or maybe want to try to use Noah's config as sort of a starting point. broken it all out in the show notes just go look for episode what is this uh, 453 again 454 just go look for episode 454 and uh, it'll all be broken out in there is there anything else you want to add to all of that mess before we move on if anyone tries to set this up and doesn't get it to work don't call me (laughs) yeah and best of luck to you All right, that's Noah's Adventures with IPsec this week And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. Before we go, we want to get into some emails, which I think are going to kick off a few interesting discussions, uh, as well as a few other bits and odds that we want to cover with you guys. Before we go, I want to thank System76 for sponsoring the feedback. You can go to System76.com and get yourself a rig designed, born, created to run Linux. Comes preloaded with Ubuntu. And, you know, I've my personal experience for over a decade now has been just about any distro I've ever put on there runs great. Really, I've never had a problem. They have, uh, of course, an out-of-the-box experience with Ubuntu, and they'll help you support that. And it's a really nice package. If you're looking for that Mac-like experience when it comes to Linux, you know what I'm talking about. The one where people are like, I just want to take it out of the box, set it up, and not have any problems. Yeah, that's System76. And the great thing is if you do have an issue, they got a good company behind them to support you. System76.com. Go there and check it out. Killer laptops, desktops, all-in-ones, tiny machines, huge desktop-destroying machines, or light 14 inches. They got the whole range over at System76.com as well as servers and swag. Once you check out, just tell them Noah switched you to Linux. It's our little secret. Shh. I don't care if you already run Linux. Just tell them Noah switched you and uh, you're going to get System76.com. System76.com. Thanks to System76 for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. All right. I will do the emails and I will read the first one. And this one came in from Chris B., about Arch versus an LTS. He says, hey, guys, I love the show and had a question that I was wondering if I could get an opinion on from the two most foremost Linux experts. Well, I'll, uh, I'll say at least the loudest. Um, you know, although <laughs> as at a certain point, I feel like the fact that we've this show as an institution has been around for a decade just qualifies us like as like we should have like some tenure now. We get tenure mm-hmm. in the Linux community. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm currently an Arch user, but I'm troubled by your recent stories of Arch breaking at a crucial time. I'm considering a switch back to uh, Zubuntu 16.04 when the new X260 arrives. Because I've noticed that the Arch system I've created now is very similar to the base install of Zubuntu. I'm enjoying the rolling release, bleeding-edge nature of Arch, especially uh, some of the default apps that he's installed or things like getting the newest versions of Fire Jail. What's up? But wonder if Zubuntu would be more bulletproof in keeping with your newest discussions. And if Arch is worth the trouble... If we will essentially – if I'm just essentially creating Ubuntu in the end, thanks, love the show, and keep up the great work. I don't want to answer this just yet because I think the next – I think my answers to the next question are going to answer Chris's. So the two will go together, but I want to say this. Uh, My arch issues, for those of you that don't know, what happened was – I always, do, I always do updates about every couple of days on my main workstation. I don't always reboot. Like sometimes I – you guys probably done this. Like I have another terminal window going doing the updates. I get some work done and I get distracted and I leave. I come back. Oh, yeah, I got to reboot like a day or two later. In this case, I think it was like three days later. I hit the reboot. Machine comes back up. GDM comes up. I log in. Hit enter. No on X. Flash, flash, flash. I see my mouse cursor for a second. Flash, flash, boom, back to GDM. I, u- I check journal CTL, comes out with a whole bunch of no errors. Nothing that I can really quite wrap my head around because it's just like general GTK error, all of the things. Like everything <laughs> is giving me errors. And I'm like, okay, this is a bad one. And uh, I didn't really know what the issue was. I was really in the middle of a project too, so it was a bad time. That's why it was like super upsetting because it was like, gosh, this is my machine that I sit down at and I – without a beat. Like right. by the time my, my butt's like just sitting in the chair and I'm already typing and I'm working. And yeah, so yeah. for that machine to break, it's, a, it's like, a, oh, what am I going to do? I'm rudderless. And uh, I, I, I stepped away for a while and just kind of stepped around the issue by installing Budgie Desktop from the AUR, which I have really enjoyed. And um, which then made me more seriously consider Solus as my primary driver, sort of like what Chris B is going through right now. He's recreated Zubuntu. So now he's considering just going back to Zubuntu. I kind of created Solus. And so now I'm just thinking, well, maybe I should just use Solus. Um, But I'm going to continue. We'll continue to the next thing. The only thing I'll point out is my particular issue, just so you guys know, was I think something. I think the chat room called it out. A couple of you, I think, did on Twitter, too. It was the Infinality or infatality font package. It's just been abandoned. And I guess when this machine was set up ages ago, I I, I installed that and I, I, it's caused issues. Resetting up FreeType 2 appropriately uh, fixed my problem. What? Ages. What?
1: All of nine months
0: ago. I know. It feels like ages ago though. I know. Yeah. I was thinking that too. But in terms of the amount of machines I've gone through since that computer has been set up, like in machine age, <laughs> it's been ages. It really has. It's like yeah. one of my oldest installs now just because of the amount of turnover I've had recently. And I wasn't really – I didn't want to abandon it because I have a whole bunch of things set up on it. So I finally was like, all right, I'm willing to take another crack at fixing this. And I I reinstalled my fonts, got all that font crap, the free type stuff set up. And now now Gnome's working fine. VLC is working fine. The things – I could log in just fine. And after all of that, I'm still on Budgie. So let's get to Rick's question and we'll answer the rest. Okay.
1: All right. So uh, Rick writes in and he wants to know about Bulletproof Linux and he says – Arch Linux proper with the Linux LTS, NVIDIA LTS driver using uh, NVIDIA, and a desktop environment that is not GNOME or Plasma. The only issue I've had with Arch have been tied to the graphics driver, display manager, and desktop environment. Now add fonts. I I, (laughs) I love GNOME and Plasma. However, both are being updated too often to be considered bulletproof. Use something boring like XFCE, or Matei, if you want bulletproof by default, XFCE and Matei
0: look pretty boring, but they can be tweaked to look amazing. Check it out. And he links us to the r slash Unix point. So I agree, uh, and this this is why I go back to Chris. So Chris is on XFCE on Arch right now, and if he swapped out his kernel for the LTS kernel and his driver for the NVIDIA LTS driver kernel, I would almost bet money that he, in keeping with Zubu, or I'm sorry, XFCE, mm-hmm. I would almost bet money that he would have a bulletproof setup right there because. In total, my most reliable stable systems have been my arch systems in total. I had a recent crash, but in totality, all of my other systems eventually have some sort of problem after an update after like a year or so, or I can't install something, or it has this version of GTK, and CoreBird requires this version of GTK. Like, I always get there yeah. with all of my other systems, and my arch boxes, with the exception of the uh, Hairmaster upstairs, mm. have been very solid, and so... I, too, have been considering – here's my list just real quick and I'll let you jump in. Mm-hmm. I've been considering – and this is in no particular order, but, but I've been considering doing Arch with LTS kernel and driver and just sticking with Budgie or um, XFCE because it it really is GNOME and Plasma that changed the most. I've also been considering Plasma LTS. I'm trying to figure out if I could get that on Arch or maybe get it going on Debian or maybe use KDE Neon LTS. Or maybe it's Ubuntu. Like there's the, there are – so my list of distros that I'm considering in no order of priority right now is Debian, Ubuntu LTS, Arch LTS with a simple desktop environment, and KDE Neon LTS. And I think Chris B has probably got a pretty close configuration to what I would end up on if I went with Arch. So I, I don't know. You can, you can switch to Ubuntu, but I'd, I'd ask you why if it's working for you. Uh, and Rick points out – you know does point out that a lot of times with Arch, it's the graphics driver – um, or in my case, fonts, or the desktop environment gets updated, and something breaks.
1: So I, uh, you know, I, 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 begrudgingly have to agree that I had a, I had an old ThinkPad that I, tr- I did actual arch, like from scratch, like command line, mm-hmm. you know, animal style installing arch, <laughs> and uh, it, you know that that machine has never failed. In fact, I actually wound up in that that rut uh, like about a year ago where if you didn't update, you were going to be hosed. And I Mm -hmm. came out on the other side of it and I was like, well, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to get screwed when I update. And I just asked the beard. I said, yeah, I broke my machine, blah, blah, blah. And he gave me some, you know, magic that I pasted in there and it just somehow it fixed it. And even that, I, was able to <laughs> from. Hey, I don't know what we did. I don't, she, she just you must be talking like
0: about I, like one of the file system changes or the move to system D or yeah, something. I
1: don't yeah. know. All I know is broke and beard fixed it. But the, the, the point is like the, the, it, it, it never actually breaks. And I can't say I've, I've always ended up having to do something, you know, with my laptop or my desktop. However, there are machines that I have installed like way back in the day that I was like, I, I knew that they were going to have to be longevity machines.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I set them up with LTS and just the last week, right before we got on the air, I was looking at one of those machines and it was an Ubuntu 1204 machine. Like it has run great for like seven years and I've never even touched it. I don't even remember half the stuff that was on there until I logged into it. So I really think if you're looking for, you know, you need this specific software stack and it's available on Ubuntu, I think that there's nothing wrong with using Ubuntu. I don't think anything's ever going to break. I just have run into times where there are certain software that isn't available, that is available on Arch. And the other thing is, the direction that Canonical is going, you know, I'm still upset about this whole Wi-Fi thing, you know, little things like that, just, they grind me in a way that I just, I can't recover from.
0: I would say, I think, you know, just to sort of summarize all this, the thing that really stands out to me between you and I, and what the audience has been saying too, is it really depends Mm -hmm. on your use case. Uh, Is this a system you're going to set, set it up once and kind of leave it? Then some, one distro may work better than the other. Is this something that you're going to want to be able to maybe get a, fairly stable base, but kind of want to stay current on kernels and, mm-hmm. and video drivers and occasionally play games, then another distro is going to work for you. Do you going to, are you gonna run mostly server-side applications? Another distro. It's, so there's there is no one single answer. But I and feel and like your we comfortability
1: are comfortability too. Yes, yeah. Your comfortability yeah, plays into yeah. how, how, how well familiar. Are you
0: mm-hmm. yeah. I feel like though we are circling in on a series of possibilities, like four or five, six options that that solve a lot of these scenarios in a lot of these cases and so i'm going to probably spend i don't know the rest of this next week trying to trying to nail down my list maybe one distro and trying it and i'll probably toss a lot of them on that new xps 13 uh that i got the KB lake yeah and see what's where you know because that's just a nice i don't think so i think we covered this i think we covered this we already covered this it's it's both it's both I watch an Intel presentation. I watch an Intel. That's where I got it from. See? But I think we looked it up, and it's both. Like it literally, people say both. So have at it. I even double checked with the beard just like yesterday. I checked oh, in yeah. on him. Yeah, <laughs> just to make sure that we really looked into it. Uh, so, um, anyways, I'm going to give it a go on there, and I'll I'll try to come back with something for you guys. I know not everybody cares, but at least I care for at least one my one of my machines. I want to <laughs> do this to it, maybe two machines, and then the rest I'll just have at it. Who cares? But that's kind of my thoughts. If you'd like to get your thoughts on the show, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com contact or leave us feedback at linuxactionshow.reddit.com or a comment on the YouTube video. And why not give us a thumbs up if you're watching over the tube because come on, long form content needs your support on that. Platform. You can also watch us live at jblive.tv. The calendar is at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar for when we do it. we got a live chat room. Uh, we have the live stream in multiple destinations, including you can just pop it right in VLC or MPV. That's my preferred way. Also, Also, if you want more Linux... Check out Linux Unplugged on Tuesdays. We have all the stuff I just said, plus a live mumble room where you can interact with us. It's like our virtual lug. We often have great guests that show up and chat with everybody that's in there. It's a great experience, both live and after the fact. Linux Unplugged, one of the Internet's favorites. You can find all of that over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Noah, he's at Colonel Linux. What about the business? You're talking about the business. Can people follow that online?
1: Yep, yep. At at, uh, at Speed, we've got some new pictures that are going out this week of uh, what we did the last couple days. So that will be kind of cool.
0: We, oui. uh, you can follow me at Chris Las. The network is at Jupiter Signal. And if you're at all interested in my adventures in hunting a rat, or potentially a mouse, or a squirrel, or a gerbil in my RV, yeah, it's been a multi-week process. You can catch that and many more things at YouTube.com/slash Chris Fisher. As well, I should probably say this. This is this is, this is this is the pitch man that I am for my own stuff. My first hands-on early review of the XPS 13, the latest Sputnik edition, is also in the latest vlog. I probably could have mentioned that earlier in the show, not at the end of the show, that if you are curious about my early impressions with the new XPS 13, it's also in the latest vlog. I, I'm such an idiot. I am the worst self-promoter ever, but you can find that at YouTube.com. Slash Chris Fisher. All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of the Linux Action Show, and we'll see you right back here next week. Noah can't edit under Linux until he gets a beard again. Well, yeah, that's right. You shave the beard. That's right. I did. Yeah. I'm surprised it didn't get more hate for that. I thought actually. it looked good, too. Mm-hmm. I did,
1: too. I just got, I just, it started itch it to itch. That's the thing, dude. What you got
0: to do is you just, well, what, what part itched? Neck. Yeah, that's the worst part. Yeah, I know.
1: And you know, the other thing is too is like I had like my kids, like my like Emma would like grab out and just like yank on it.
0: Oh, really? Yank on my face. Yeah. Well I put I put the kibosh on that. I tell you what, man, I shut that down. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! You know, another reason you got to come out here soon is we have the uh, we have the new uh, we have the, the grill the old grill hooked back up. So I'm oh, yeah cooking shit on that all the time.
1: And we're grilling on the grill, yes. not barbecuing.
0: Mm, yes, no. And, yes, it makes well, me happy. Yeah. As I can tell. You see, I'm willing to i su- I'm willing to concede on some things like grills and barbecue if we define the parameters, but uh you on the other hand. No. Hey,
1: I'll tell you what. We I ate actual barbecue with you and it was good. I mean it wasn't like Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like yeah. North Texas kind right, of barbecue yeah. good, but it was
0: really good. Jeez, yeah, your dad probably does give you a hard time constantly, I would imagine. And then Whew.
1: But it's it's kinda of funny, like, because like I just I'm very, very um I don't know what the word is, but like like I'll be eating a burger while he's explaining to me how I'm gonna die and I'm like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh mm-hmm. huh, mm-hmm. I die. Uh mm-hmm. uh. Mm-hmm. Fries hmm. Right, that's
0: me. And then you chug it's a coke. Bad. And then you chug the Coke. Yeah. I uh <clears throat> I only expect to make it to sixty myself, so
1: I told okay. Sir that exact, same, Maybe not. Really? 70,
0: I was hoping eighty. But I told Oh you the exact God! Same I kill okay. for eighty, but I feel like I'm cruising for sixty.
1: Not usually, I'm gonna try to stretch it 80, to seventy. Think about it. How many people do you know after eighty, like, have a super good life? Like, it pretty much goes
0: downhill from there anyway, right? Like, really, really rich people. Really rich people. Yeah. Right. Uh, here we go. Hey, Noah! Quit screwing around. Do the news. Jeez.